This recording is a production of Faith Builders Educational Programs. This presentation was recorded at Teachers Week 2016, held at Faith Builders on August 1 through 5. All right, welcome back. Uh, I sat in the last session here that Jeremy and Diana did, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, about communication between teachers and students, and really about your relationship with your students. And I was connecting that to what we've been talking about here in this session, and that is that knowledge is also a very relational, a, a relational thing, um, and it ought to be treated that way. So uh, we'll pick up where we left off yesterday. I titled this session Anvil Work because I hope to get down to the knit and grit of maybe the classroom and who we are as teachers and a little more practical today. But I do want to review what we talked about yesterday just quickly. For those of you that weren't here, I think it'll be a little difficult to jump in today, but if we do a a quick review, that might help. So yesterday we talked about the fact that we are Anabaptists, and we begin with that context in mind. Anabaptists have traditionally treated knowledge a bit like a loaded gun, and uh, we were asking the question, is that a legitimate approach? Uh, Where should we critique that? Where should we continue that tradition? We recognize that in schools we're going to offer knowledge. That's what we do. But we remember, as historians, that knowledge can be a loaded gun. We've experienced it that way, and you probably personally have experienced it that way, if not as a group. So we will beat on that knowledge. We're going to shape it. We're going to work on it. And our goal is to shape that knowledge into godly wisdom, hence uh, knowledge to wisdom, guns into plowshares, our analogy yesterday. I'd like to begin today by going back to the verse that we looked at yesterday in James and the part that speaks of the transformed life. Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And as I said yesterday, I find that idea, this meekness of wisdom, interesting. Why not just show his works in wisdom? Seems to me a little redundant even to say meekness of wisdom. What are we talking about? So I thought we'd unpack that a bit today. And hopefully by the end of this session, you might have an idea of what it would be or what it might look like to be a teacher who teaches out of the meekness of wisdom and hopefully an idea of what it even means in a larger scale to be part of our Anabaptist educational system and what what that looks like in regard to meekness of wisdom. So I want to talk about the village blacksmith. That's you and I. We're the teachers We're the ones that are hopefully going to do some of the hammering. I want to remind you, not all of the hammering, but some of it. And an old proverb from, I think, Africa, which you've probably heard before, is it takes a village to raise a child. And I think that's true. We're not self-made people. I I confess that in my own life, that if I begin to think through all the people that have been a part of making my life what it is, both good and bad, I guess, it's, it's a tremendous body of influence and people that have put energy into my life. And we're just simply not self-made. And I'm not a parent. I don't have any children. Uh, have a puppy, which is not even remotely like having a child. But um, sometimes my wife and I sit in church and we watch parents raise their children. And we think, okay, so uh, how does this work? How does that work? Uh, we'll never do that. We'll always do this. Or... Uh, And, of course, I hope we're wise enough to understand that it will probably look a lot different if we ever actually have children. Um, But I think this even applies to parenting 
and our schools are simply a part of that process. And I hope that we can be a help to families, a help to parents in that idea of, hey, it takes more than just me to raise my own child. It takes a village to raise a child. We're not self-made. I remember a time when I was younger, I had a problem, and sometimes I still have a problem with this, but I had a particular problem with having a smart response in regard to everything my mom would tell me to do. And, and sometimes it was in the form of an excuse or who knows what it might be. And my mom and my, my dad were working on me in regard to that. And they were trying to teach me to get over this problem of having a smart response for everything I was asked to do. And, of course, I heard them. But it ended up ultimately taking more than just my parents to help me, I think, grow through that, that moment. And I particularly remember a time when one of my aunts addressed the issue. And she said, you know, Kyle, you have a... You have a smart response to everything that someone tells you to do, don't you? And, you know, that settled home in a way that was a little different than when my parents talked to me about it. And not saying that my parents are incapable, but it takes a village to raise a child. That was good for me to hear that coming from my aunt. And, and her instruction was good for me at that moment. And I think that that, that is an important thing for us to remember as we, as we talk about knowledge and our hammering on it and our position in that hammering as teachers. We're just a small piece of it, but we want to take our piece seriously. I believe that the village blacksmith needs to be committed to the church. The village that you and I belong to is the church. And in order to accomplish our goals, we must start there with a deep commitment to the church. And I've never thought through the ramifications too far, but if you have a teacher that is not committed to the church, the the havoc that could ultimately come out of that in in a generation even seems extremely immense. And one of the questions that I've often asked my students is this one. Sometimes when we look at those freelance Christians, they look so free. They look so alive and on fire and they're doing amazing things and it seems like their testimony is a powerful one. And it probably, there, there are great things that come out of, I think, even the freelance Christian's life. But one of the questions that we sometimes don't ask is, what does the freelance Christian create? What, what is left? What is the product? What can we get our hands on and say, this is what the freelance Christian creates? And sometimes I feel like there's a, a great dearth of infrastructure or something that, sure, there's a bang and there's an explosion, but when they're gone, it's all gone with them. And so I encourage us once again to a deep commitment to the church and ask ourselves, what is it that we let behind? What is it that we create? What is it that uh, is the product of our efforts? So the village blacksmith, that's us. We remember that it takes a village to raise a child. We remember that we must be committed to the church. I still believe that God ultimately works through the church. That is his primary method of advancing the kingdom is through his church, and we can be a part of that. I'd like to offer up a question. So who defines education? Who gets to say this is what it is? This is what education is. Does the church define what education is? Does the parent define what education is? Does the school define what education is? Maybe the teacher gets to do that. Who gets to say, this is what education really is? And maybe I'll just, uh, I'm going to try to be practical here. At FBCS, we reckon with this. I think every school reckons with this. And... You know, one of, the, one of the practical ways that we as a school end up playing a role in defining education is our responses to things like, can I have off to go on a skiing trip? 
well, is that an educational trip or is that not an educational trip? So we decide whether we're going to define that as educational or not educational. And, and I remember particularly uh, in the past, uh, I remember having two requests come kind of back to back. And as a school wondering, okay, how do you respond to this? So one parent wanted to take their child out of school to go to a horse pool. And the defense there was that uh, they, it was a family thing. They've done horse pooling for years. They want our children to understand horses and to know how to do horse pooling. This is a part of who we are. It's educational. That was a tough one for us to know what to say about that. And I'm not going to tell you what we said. Yeah. But, but that's the practicality of defining what education actually is. So do we get to say, no, that's not education. You can't go. And the parent says, yes, it is. Education, who decides? And I remember soon after that, another parent came and, well, we'd like to take our children out of school for a few days. We're going to take a trip to uh, a major city. And as a school, once again, we're up with the, we're making a decision. Well, is that considered an educational trip? Can we let the student off for several days? Suddenly, the school finds itself in a position where it's defining education. It's defining what it is. And I'm asking, is that the way it ought to be? Does the school define education in that sense, or does the church define education? Do the, does the teacher define education, or does the parent define education? Right now, uh, we, we are reckoning with something. I don't know if your schools ever deal with this, but here at FBCS, we, we bump up against something that I think is even, to me, more confusing than the scenario I just shared with you. And that is, what do you do with the parent that comes and says, we would like to pull our children out of school for two weeks to go on a missions trip. Missions trips are good things. Is that education? Maybe it is educational, but does it fit with, does, does the village agree that that's the way we're going to do this? It gets really confusing. Who gets to define what education is really going to be for our children? The school can stand up there and stomp our feet and say, we love missions, but you can't go. And the church can say, but missions is what we're all about. That's what, that's what it is. And once again, we come back, who actually gets to define it? Say what it actually is. I think there, of course, has to be humility. And one of the things that, of course, in an ideal world, we could say, well, it shouldn't even be a discussion about who gets to define it. In an ideal world, we should just be doing it together. Absolutely, in an ideal world. But we still find ourselves in these tensions, I think, every school year because we're trying to figure out who actually gets to say what education is. So obviously, I think there has to be humility and there has to be relationship between the school and the church. But... We still have to remember that however that humility works itself out, we really ought to be aiming for the ideal goal of working together. And it should be done in community. And, and maybe there are some ways that, that that could actually work. And I want to maybe brainstorm about that a bit. I want you to understand this is a bit of brainstorming. And so I'm not, I'm not throwing this out. Just go back to your community. Do it this way. I'm not so sure about that. But here's some ideas. I do think that the school should have some knowledge about what education is. I don't think that that's necessarily the church's job is to be the, the, you know, the wisecrack or the authority on what education will look like. They're not the ones doing the research. Hopefully you and I are the ones that are doing the research on what a school should look like, how it should run, how it should work, um, how to do it really well, understanding students, what is best for a student, what isn't good for a student. Is it good for a student to, to take off for several weeks? Is that detrimental to a student? We hopefully have some knowledge about some of those things. And we could talk about the church and what the church should do and how the church can be humble, but that's not what we're here together to talk about this week. We're here to talk about what we do. 
And for one thing, I, I'm not sure if I even have any authority to talk about that in regard to the church. So hopefully that discussion happens somewhere. Hopefully there's a place where there's pastors sitting together and they're talking about how the church can be involved in our young people's education. I hope that's happening somewhere. But that's not who we are. We're teachers. So we're going to talk about the side that, that we deal with uh, and how we can be humble and how we can actually bring our knowledge to the church in humble ways. So it's true that the school should be knowledgeable and that we should offer that knowledge to the church. It should be offered, but it should be offered humbly. And I would even say, it may be in a smaller scale, it's true that the teacher should be knowledgeable about what is best for a student and should offer that knowledge to the parent, but it should be done humbly, of course. So, humble Christian educators. First of all, I think we need to begin with relationship and not policy. Policy is important. Your school hopefully has some policy, but I think you should begin with relationship, not policy. I can tell you the temptation as, as a teacher to just throw a policy to a parent that you don't, like, you don't really appreciate their definition of education. You can put them in a corner with some policy, and, and that is, that is a, a very tempting thing to do. Well, our policy is that you get an F. For this, that, or the other thing. And so you just throw a policy at them. And, and I think there's a place for that, right? Uh, right now at FBCS, we're working at coming up with some policy in regard to school absences and those types of things. There's absolutely a place for that, but it's not where you begin. Otherwise, I think we immediately have that dichotomy where it is church against school soon because we're trying to create policy that makes them work with our definition of education and they're trying to. Uh, break through that policy, and we can soon become at odds with each other very quickly and and arrogant. So I think, first of all, we begin with relationship, not policy. Your knowledge should be submitted to the church community as a tool. So to withhold knowledge is not the answer either. As a school, as I said, hopefully we have some knowledge about how education should actually happen, and we should submit that knowledge in all humility. But it should be submitted as a tool, not as an answer. Be a tool that the church can use to make decisions as a village about how we're going to raise our young people. That knowledge, ideally, should get beaten and hammered into wisdom by the church community. So we, as a school, could say, this, this is how we think a young person will learn best in our community, and this is why we think that. This is the knowledge behind what we're asking for or what we believe. And the church can take that knowledge and hopefully respect it and take that knowledge into account as a tool in order to make some wise decisions about what your community, how your community is going to live. And as the school, we can function, I think, beautifully out of the authority of the church when that can happen. Now, we need to understand, sometimes the church doesn't know how or feel, they feel incapable of doing this. I understand that. You could go to your, your pastor and say, well, you know what I'd like you to do, here's, here's some knowledge about how young people learn. I'd like you to hammer out a wise decision now. And, and he might look at you and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's, that's very legitimate. So once again, I come back to a relationship with the church, relationship with your church leaders, relationship with your parents. And that is that you have a relationship that you begin to know each other and understand how you can help each other. And you can, you can be a giver of tools in order to make wise decisions. But that may need to take, that may, that may require a relationship. That may require some time for that to happen. And once again, humility on both parts. So humble Christian educators begin with relationship, not policy. Secondly, humble Christian educators mix their students' lives with your educational process. So, when you are teaching, I think it's easy to become arrogant and prideful in your knowledge 
and not take into account your students. So, as humbly as I can say this, those of us that are sitting in this room that have taught longer have a bigger problem with this sometimes than young teachers because we have a certain way that we teach this thing and we're just going to teach it like that again because we've done it that way for the last 10 years. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't connect any of our students' lives anymore or not. That's how we do it because we're good at this. We've done it for a while. So I think sometimes we as experienced teachers need to be reminded that ruts can be unhelpful. And sometimes we have to ask ourselves, who are my students this year? How can I take this content that I'm going to be teaching and how can I make it connect to their lives? I don't know how it is for you, but I actually, I find a lot of pleasure in doing this. And, and I often get to the end of a, of a unit and think, now, why didn't, I, why didn't I do this, that, or the other thing? It always you know, it hits me later how I could have connected it to my students' lives. That's unfortunate. But the moments when it actually happens, I absolutely love and I enjoy. I, I teach physics. And in physics, I think there are just a multitude of, of opportunities to connect what you're teaching to the lives of your students. And by the way, I think every class actually has those opportunities. And, and if you think your class doesn't, then uh, maybe you just need to brainstorm more. I know there are some that, that are easier than others. But physics is particularly that way, and I really enjoy that. So last year, I had a, I had a class of mostly guys. Well, actually, the last couple of years, it's been mostly guys. I'm starting to get a few more ladies in, into my room. But mostly guys, and they all like to archery hunt. And so I decided that we're going to use some of the things that they really enjoy in that class in order to learn the concepts that I want them to learn. So uh, I'm not sure if this was uh, an assignment like this is uh, going to be endorsed by the church or not. I hope it is. I didn't go ask them before we did this. But we actually asked the question, so if someone was 20 yards away with a bow and they, uh, they shot an arrow at me, would I be able to dodge the arrow or am I a dead duck? And and we wanted to test this out. So, uh, obviously, we didn't want to test it out by actually doing it. So, I asked them. So, you have some knowledge about physics. We've been learning physics this year. So, let's use your knowledge as a tool, right? Let's think about this. How can we test this? And they got to thinking, and we came up with a plan. And, you know, they really enjoyed that, uh, that unit. Uh, they really enjoyed it because I think their lives connected to it, and they really got into it. I think I could have walked up there and taught that unit, as I always do, and they might have learned some facts, but I think I would have missed them a little bit. So humble educators, I think, have to be willing to say this is, you know, for me, that was easy enough because I liked archery hunt. Sometimes we have to be willing to even do things that we have no interest in, but we know our students do. That's harder than doing something that we also have an interest in. But that takes humility to say it doesn't have to be my way. I think I can do it a little bit your way. And, and you can learn something from that. So humble Christian educators mix their students' lives with their educational process. By the way, if you want to know how we tested that out, you can talk to me afterwards in time. I'd love to tell you about it. I think it's really interesting. I would also like to say that homegrown teachers are better at this. There are some great things about us, you know, going off to some community and teaching there where we don't know all the things that, uh, you know, all the nitty-gritty details of that community. And sometimes that's helpful in good ways, so I'm not, uh, I'm not undermining that. But I will say this. Someone that has grown up in a community and understands the people in that community can connect what they teach to the lives of the people in that community better than someone that moves in. So homegrown teachers are a great thing. If you're that, wonderful. If you're not that, praise the Lord anyway. I think you also need to learn skills that your students will enjoy. Skills that connect to, to the content that you teach, but skills that have no connection to the content that you teach. One of the things that we do in my room is we've played hacky sack over the last few years, and i got to tell you, I don't know anything about hacky sack. I, I was as new at hacky sack as any of my students were. And, you know, I could have said, I'm going to throw a hacky sack in the back of the room, but I'm not going to go to the work to get good at hacky sack. 
I want them to do it, but not me. Well, I haven't got good at hacky sack yet, but I've tried. Uh, we stand in the back of that room in a circle, and we try to kick that thing around. And I try to get as good at it. I try to put effort into getting skilled at hacky sack because I want them to put effort into, into being skilled at hacky sack. It's not really connected to any content that we're teaching, but I think it takes humility to say, once again, I will get down on the floor with you. I will do what you do. I will try to get skilled at the things that I think you ought to get skilled at. I'll be a part of that. And lastly, humble Christian educators enjoy students' questions. This is the first year that I taught school. I'm going to say it was within the first month of teaching. I'm not quite sure. Something like that. It was in the first month of teaching. I was fresh out of the teacher apprenticeship program here at Faith Builders and had all kinds of ideas about how school was going to be fun. And, you know, I think I walked into the classroom those days with probably better prepared lessons than what I do now because I had all kinds of energy for that. And, you know, they were the supercharged lessons that we're going to just bring it to them today. And I remember I held forth for 30 minutes one day on tectonic plates. And at the end of that class period, I was thinking to myself, man, if they didn't get tectonic plates, I mean, they were somewhere else because that was a good lesson. And one of the guys sitting in the back, he was kind of slouched down on his desk and he raised his hand. He said, Brother Kyle, I'm having a hard time believing any of this. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that took my legs out from under me right there. Uh, and, And at that moment... There was a part of me that, that I just wanted to say, well, but you have to believe it. You know, I said it. Uh, and I, I didn't know what to say at that moment. I was like, I never heard someone say they didn't believe in tectonic plates. And, and I was dumbfounded uh, at that moment. But since then, you know, and I think in that moment, I actually felt a little threatened. I thought, you know, I just spent 30 minutes speaking about tectonic plates and how they work together and how they push against each other. And someone just saying, I don't think you know what you're talking about. And something inside of me wanted to well up and, and just say, but you have to believe that I know what I'm talking about. And, and I didn't enjoy that question in that moment. Now I love telling the story because the reality is that was a great question. Uh, I was talking about some things that I thought were just going to be so easy to understand and just blowing them up. And in the end, he just said, it sounds unbelievable. And, you know, that was, that was an enjoyable question. So I think as humble Christian educators, once again, those types of questions, we need to be able to enjoy them. Uh, it's okay if a student isn't quite too, isn't sure about what we're saying. Uh, I don't think we have to be threatened by that. We have the humility to say, hey, okay, so why do you think that it's impossible for tectonic plates to function like this? Uh, I was too young at that moment to be able to respond, I think, with the kind of humility that would have been uh, appropriate. Um, I just kind of brushed it off and, and moved on. I said, I don't know what to tell you if you don't, if you, don't uh, you know, if you have a hard time believing that. Uh, But yes, we need to enjoy students' questions and invite those questions. So I realize I'm going to go over this fairly quickly here, but the village blacksmith needs to be a humble learner. Village blacksmith needs to be mature. Sometimes this is just hard work. You need to be more mature than your students, and hopefully I think if you've been in the classroom as long as all of you have been, you've already established that you're probably more mature than your students. But I find that it doesn't get any easier to put duty before pleasure. Sometimes the longer I teach, I find myself actually struggling more with this. I've been doing this for a long time. I'm tired of working on grading tonight. I think I'll just not do it. Procrastination is a bigger problem for me now than I think it was when I first started teaching because I had so much energy for what I did. As we teach over the years, I think we have to remind ourselves that, you know, we still have a call to put duty before pleasure as teachers, even as experienced teachers. We need to be servants. We need to be inspiring. 
Once again, as much as, as, much as there is a weakness in the, the early idealism of when you begin, it is inspiring at one level to have someone believe in what they're doing so much, even if it is idealistic. So I don't know where the perfect blend of that is, but for experienced teachers, we, don't, we can't forget that we do need to be inspiring. And sometimes old content becomes less inspiring over the years. Now I've taught about tectonic plates quite a few times since then. That first lesson, I think, was more fun on one hand. But, you know, I still have to remember that I need to, I need to bring some inspiration into that same lesson 10 years down the road. For some of you, 20 years down the road. We need to be skillful. I've already talked about that some, so I uh, won't talk about that more. And ultimately, we need to be an example of Jesus. So that's the village blacksmith. That's us. I want to talk about 1,700 degree knowledge. So I did a little research on blacksmithing before this topic and discovered that, you know, when they heat up a piece of metal and they pound on it and they try to reshape it, shape it into something, it actually has to be a certain temperature. It can't just be any temperature. Now, this is a little small. I don't know if you can, how well you can read it. But they learn to gauge the temperature by the color of the metal. And you inherently know this, or maybe you've seen it, that as metal gets hotter, it turns red and then it turns eventually yellow when it gets very very hot and if you would heat metal to the point of it being bright yellow or 2000 degrees it would essentially be liquid metal your ability to hammer on it would be useless in fact uh, the picture i have there on the right is what metal looks like when it's at 2000 degrees it would be pourable and i would pause you that's that's a bit of the approach that the military takes Someone enters the military and they heat them up till they are so hot that they can pour them into a new mold and they completely destroy the person that came into the military. That's their approach. I would say it's over the top. I think as educators, we're looking at something a bit different. We're, we're looking to, to heat our students up in a way that makes them pliable. We hope that when someone hits them, they bend a little bit, but we don't want to turn them into molten metal. Many processes in life are about finding the correct temperature. You know, I don't know how many of you teach music, but you can stand in front of your students and say, hey, I'd like you to sing a little louder. You realize there is such a thing as too loud as well. There is the screaming class, you know, that you you say, that's too loud. Many of the processes in life have a certain temperature that's just right. And you don't want to be above that. You don't want to be below it. I think priorities are that way. And I think when we heat up knowledge, it's that way. Now, the question is, how do we heat up knowledge? Uh, and I'd like to spend the last few minutes talking about that. So 1,700 degree knowledge, I think, is heated up by requiring our students to make choices. Now, I understand, and once again, this is where I'm going to rely on the fact that you're an experienced teacher, and I hope I don't have to explain all the flip sides to this coin. I understand that most of life is not a choice, and that in this world today, young people grow up believing that all of life ought to be their choice, and it's not that way. So I understand that. I'm not talking about that. Choices and wisdom are directly related. Now, when a child is born, they make almost no choices. This is familiar to you, I'm sure. And as they get older, it's common knowledge. We generally give them more choices. However, I'd like to talk about how we do this in the classroom a bit and how we incorporate, uh, and I'm going to even say requiring students to make choices because sometimes we talk about allowing or letting people make choices. That's the kind of choice that, They're dying to make, and we're just keeping them from making it. I'm talking about asking a person to make a choice that they don't really want to make. It's actually a little difficult to make, or maybe they're not even sure if they know how to make the choice in that moment. 
I think choices and wisdom are directly related. And so as, uh, as, as we look at our students, first grade through 12th grade, I think there should be a sense in our school for what choices we're asking our students to make. And I think that it will, it will change. It's going to look very different in first grade than it's going to look in 12th grade. I don't know if there will be more choices, maybe more choices that we ask of them or require of them in 12th grade, maybe a different kind of choices. But I think we have to be wise in embedding those into the, into the educational process. I think that's how we heat knowledge up and how we reshape it and bend it and turn it into something different. So we need to require students to make choices. When a person has to make a choice, knowledge becomes a tool rather than a weapon. Because if you have no knowledge, it's very difficult to make a choice. If you have no knowledge in a particular field and you're suddenly called upon to make a choice in that moment, you're going to say, well, I need to have some knowledge in order to make this choice. So knowledge is a tool when you're making a choice. So I think choices take knowledge and they bend it that direction rather than towards usage as a weapon. Now I want you to understand that students, when they come into your classroom, they already know how to use knowledge as a weapon. We're, all, we're not into born with that. They already have a sophisticated system of rating themselves and other people, and that's all through the knowledge that they have. That is, I know that that person can run faster than me, and so he is a better person than me. And he also knows he can run faster than me, and he also knows he's a better person than me. And those, those kinds of, uh, that type of knowledge is where the weaponry comes out. Students know that when they walk into your classroom. They have that down. We have to teach them how to use knowledge as a tool rather than a weapon. To put each other down, or to hurt each other with, or to manipulate each other with, or to be arrogant with. So we ask students to make choices that will push that knowledge towards being used as a tool. As students get older, I think we should ask them to make group choices. That's even harder. Boy, you wouldn't believe how hard it is for my 11th to 12th grade students and I say, you know, you guys got to agree on this together. That's a completely different ballgame than saying, well, you as an individual make a choice about this. Because suddenly, they may not even agree on, on what the choice may be. And secondly, they might have some, some conflicting knowledge that they got to work out and hammer out. And boy, all of a sudden, humility comes into play or else it's not, or no choice is going to be made. Group choices are even more difficult than individual choices. And I'm not sure, you know, hopefully once again you elementary teachers could have some ideas or input into this. I don't know when we should start asking our students to make group choices. I'm not sure what maybe they should be asked to do that in first grade. I certainly feel that by the time they're in high school, they should be, they should be asked to make group choices, not just individual choices. I want to point out that making choices and the choice that I'm talking about is very different than bargaining. Bargaining and choosing or asking your students to make choices are two very different things. So, this is an example of bargaining. You're, stu- you're talking to one of your students, and you say, uh, one of my seniors is you know, planning graduation, and Mr. Miller's talking to them, and Mr. Miller says, well, you can't have that song and wear flip-flops at grad. So, you know, I'm going to make them make a choice, right? So, if you give up one of them, I'll give you the other one. Now, I know that Mr. Miller wouldn't give them either of those, uh, but that's bargaining. That's not what I'm talking about. And sometimes when I hear the, the, the parenting philosophies that are out there these days, I feel like offering children choice has gotten more towards we're going to bargain with our children a lot. And that's not what I'm talking about. The kind of choices that I'm talking about that students should be required to make and that they're going to actually sweat under a little bit are ones like these. So in a class setting, I might say, split them into groups, and I might say, you're great to use the newspaper or six paper plates or one bag of packing peanuts for the egg drop. 
You've got to decide which one your group's going to use. Now, one of them probably is the best choice. But work it out in your group. Decide which one. Use the knowledge that you, that you have as an 11th or 12th grade student that will help you decide, you know what, we think the packing peanuts is going to be the way to go for this egg drop activity. They're going to sometimes sweat under those choices, and they're going to have to, they're going to, have to tap into their knowledge and say, well, what do, I know, what do we know about how this is going to work when we drop this egg? Another example would be a student that's actually failing at the end of the quarter. And, uh, and you give them some options. Say, look, let's make some tough choices here. I'll give you 50 points for a 600-word paper. That'll help your F out. I'll give you 30 points for a recorded interview with your pastor or 10 points for, re- for redoing the test. You might want to throw in there that, of course, we both know what your parents said about you know, volleyball next week. If you fail this quarter again, say, hey, I'm, I'm just trying to help you. you know? uh, once again, asking our students to make choices. And those choices need to have effects. It, it can't, they're not free choices. That's where wisdom comes from. When you, when you choose something and later, man, that, that didn't work. Uh, that burned me a little bit, you know. That's where wisdom starts to grow. To grow. We experience the, the cause and the effect uh, in those choices. So I think we heat, when we give our students knowledge, we're unfair to our students and I say, I'm going to teach you these things and now you know so much, you're so smart, but I'm never going to ask you to make a choice with that knowledge. They're never humbled in it because they really think they're smart. They know all these things. But, you know, it's humbling when you suddenly have to tap into that knowledge to make a tough choice. That gets a little harder. And I don't think it's fair to our students as Christian educators to hand them knowledge and not ask them to make choices, not ask them to use that knowledge as a tool. I think we have to be helpful. Sometimes, at least my experience with my students, is that it's so hard when I ask them to make choices that they almost can't do it which is maybe an indication of why this whole thing of hammering is hard work. You're not going to snap your fingers and have it happen. It's hard work. They struggle with it. So I do an economics project every year, or every year that I teach economics. I split them into groups, and I give each group $10, and I say, and this is my money. I say, this is my money. I read them the parable of the talents, and I say, you know, at the end of the semester, let's talk again. So they're like, hey, you know, we're going to invest this stuff here. Oh, what are we going to do? You know? And they get in their groups, they start hashing this stuff out. And before long, they're like, oh, man, no, we don't know. We, we don't have any ideas. You know, Mr. Kyle, do you have any ideas for us? You know? And it's amazing how all of a sudden, this is so hard, man. We can't make any choices. This is just difficult. You have to be ready to help. So I help them try to, to understand, well, what do you know? Because you know some things. You have some knowledge. Let's figure out what it is. What do you know about your community? What would they be willing to buy from you? Oh, they'll have some ideas. They start popping some things off. Well, do you think they would pay $10 for that? Would you pay $10 for that? And like, all of a sudden, the knowledge starts to, you know, starts to, oh, yeah, we do know some things about this, you know. Uh, we could. Yeah, you know, maybe we could do this. But you have to help. Choices are hard. And your students are not going to always want to make them. But it is one of the primary methods that we use to heat up knowledge so that it can be bent and shaped into something useful, shaped into a tool, not arrogance and manipulation, not a weapon. The other beautiful thing about that is that you will become... Uh, oh, sorry, I should... Uh, I, boy, I got my slides mixed up here or something. I missed a, I missed a point in my notes here. Uh, students will learn that they cannot know on their own. I think that's an important piece of this, is that they need to work together. All of a sudden, they recognize, you know what, I need, I need my teacher to figure this out. When we tried this, we couldn't think of anything, and then you know, he, helped us, he helped us get some ideas. Oh, yeah, we do know some things. And then they soon learn that their group, they got to work together with their group. And hey, it, we work together on this. It's hard for me to know on my own, but when we work together, we begin to know a few things. And lastly, I think 
just a beautiful thing for you and I is that we become their greatest resource because it's often that they come to me and they say, I don't know, Mr. Kai, you know, I need a little help. Uh, that, that's, that is a sign of something that's going on in that student. They are ready to learn from you. They're ready to listen to you because they're saying, hey, I, I need you. Can you help me? You know, uh, I can't make this choice. We're not sure what to do. So, swords to plowshares, knowledge to wisdom. Humility is central to the process of taking knowledge and beating on it and hammering on it and getting wise people. Humility is key to that. How do we get humility? By asking our students to make choices, requiring them to make choices. That is a humbling thing. Why is it that a person of age, an older person, why do they often mellow out and have a greater sense of humility than some of us young bucks that think we know things that we don't know? Why does an older person have a greater sense of humility? Often it's because they've lived a long life of making hard choices, and that's a humbling process. And they look back over their life and they say, I always thought it was like this, and then this happened. And, you know, that was an experience that made me rethink things. It's a little difficult. So after a lifetime of hard hard choices, a person recognizes that they really don't have all the answers. What they do have is they have some tools. Some tools to offer to help the group make a wise choice. And so coming back to, to teachers, I think we need to recognize that we don't have all the answers. But we have tools to help make choices. That's what knowledge is. It's a tool. It's not a weapon. It's a plow. And I hope that we can offer those tools to the church. And I hope that we can offer those tools to our students in a way that our students come to understand that. So coming back to the verse there in James 3, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Humility. And the humility of wisdom might be another way of saying it. I think, uh, as I thought through this and I read those verses, you know, there is something to the meekness of wisdom. And we need to grant that great gift to our students. I hope our students come out of our schools understanding this verse. When they graduate and they walk into that job, whatever it is, after 12 years of spending time with us, they say, I want to be wise and understanding. I want to have good conduct and I want to show my works in the meekness of wisdom. And once again, I say, and let him be the next generation's teacher. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.